For the uh, Bible Quiz families, the Dornbox, the Fosters, the Munozes, they are all down in, where are they? They were in Branson, now they're in St. Louis, and they are representing our church at the National Bible Quiz Tournament, and it looks like they're doing a great job from what I can tell, so keep them in your prayers and your support. They will be back. If you're a guest here today, thank you for being here. I'm sorry that you came and you got to hear me, but good news. In two weeks, the pastor will be back. It's an accomplished speaker. It's an amazing man. You want to come hear him speak. So hang in. Can't pick a sports team to save his life, but he's an amazing speaker. Uh, no offense if you're watching online. But yeah, you'll want to come back. So leading up to and during the life and ministry of Jesus, there was no more important religious city in the world than Jerusalem. The temple was in Jerusalem. The high priest resided in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish council, presided you guessed it, in Jerusalem, and everybody who was anybody in the religious world was in Jerusalem. However, I'm about to read you some text scriptures, and you'll notice that they give you geographical locations that are not Jerusalem. So it happens in Israel, but not in Jerusalem. So I'm going to read three of them. These are important things in the ministry of Jesus, important events. One of them is the kickoff to his ministry. It's his birth. But I want you, here's your job. First off, don't zone out because it's a lot of reading. Secondly, look for the geographical location. Thirdly, ask your neighbor when it comes up if they've ever been there. (laughs) And know that I've been to all three. So, (laughs) All right, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that one was easy. It was right off the bat, first line. Uh, when, yeah, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. The next passage is John chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And it says, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now. And bear unto the governor of the feast. I should have put this in New Living Translation. This is, a, this is a lot of thou's. And they bear it when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk that which is worse. I missed a comma in there. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. And then the last passage comes from John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'm going to jump to 17 and 18 and then finish with 41 through 44. It says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Then Jesus came. He found that he had lain in the grave for four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's two miles. I had to Google that. That's a, I didn't know what a furlong was. Two miles away. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And, when he, and, when, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. 
Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. Bethlehem, for those of you that were keeping track, Cana of Galilee and Bethany. All three important cities and all three of them were on the suburb of Jerusalem. So today I just want to talk to you for a few minutes on this deep philosophical title, The Burbs. Look at your neighbor, tell them the burbs. <laughs> All right. Despite the significant historical past and prophetic future for Jerusalem, when Jesus comes on the scene, he does not focus on the city right away, but rather on the suburbs. Or the bur- that was the, that's not the burbs of Jerusalem up there. I think that's Phoenix. But either way, you get the idea. But on the suburbs of Jerusalem. And this is different from the norm. For religious leaders... The fastest track to uh, notoriety and to get a message out was to go through the city of Jerusalem. And that's why it seems so strange that when you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and he's like all around the city, but he doesn't minister in the city. In fact, he goes out of his way to not minister in the city. Now, the Bible talks about him passing through, but he doesn't step into Jerusalem and minister. And, And this is crazy because Jerusalem was the information hub This is where the word got out. And in fact, you can read from like historical references that like there was a lot of false messiahs that came before Jesus and they always set up shop in Jerusalem. It was like the false messiah center right there. If you wanted to be a fake messiah, head to Jerusalem and just start talking. People would, half of them would take you serious and the rest would try to kill you. So Jesus goes out of his way to avoid Jerusalem. And our text tells us three significant times in the life of Jesus, where he revealed something about himself to humanity, right? That's what, that's what God's glory is. It's when he reveals something about himself to us. So when we're like, God, show us your glory, like show us something about you that maybe we didn't know before, maybe we didn't understand. And so these, these text verses show us three things about Jesus that we didn't know before. And the first happens in Bethlehem. All right, guys, I've been to Bethlehem, and I, got, I, know, I know I make this joke a lot, but i got to tell you about it because it's crazy. It's a Christmas town. Like, Bethlehem knows that Jesus was born there, talking about the literal town. And so everybody makes Christmas ornaments to sell them because that's what you do. If, if the Messiah is ever born in your town, capitalize off of it right away. <laughs> do what you got to do. And Bethlehem is close to Jerusalem. It's not far away. It's about six miles to the south of Jerusalem. So it's in the area. And it's interesting because when Jesus is born, he chooses to be born in close proximity to Jerusalem, but he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, we, we celebrate Bethlehem, like, what, every year, right? Christmas time. That's, what, that's the whole thing. Like, oh, little town of Bethlehem, we sing about it. There's a manger. There's wise men. There's a star. There's definitely no room at the end. There has, <laughs> my whole life, the story, like, there's no new story. There's still no room at the end. Jesus is born in the manger. It's a whole thing, and and it almost is to the point that we take it for granted, right? Like, oh, it's Christmas time, here comes the songs. I'm not a big fan of, like, the weather surrounding Christmas time, so it kind of messes with me a little bit. But some people love Christmas, and you're singing the songs, and there's Christmas carols. Santa Claus gets involved. It's kind of, it gets a little sideways in there at some point. But we can get to the point where we don't realize, like, this is an actual event. Jesus was born in this city, and he was born in Bethlehem. And we think of it like a celebration of peace, which is awesome, because 2,000 years later, it's peaceful to us. But at the time, it was very much not a peaceful event, because Jesus is born, and the text verses that we read tells us that Herod, who is the king, you guys want to guess where Herod was, was residing? Jerusalem, right? He's hanging out in Jerusalem. 
He hears that Jesus is born. He sends three wise men. He's like, I want to come worship him. It was a trap. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And he gets so mad that Herod actually kills every boy that's two years age and younger in the whole region just because Jesus was born. Like, that's intense. Like, that, that's just, who does that, right? This guy, Herod. Like, it was not a peaceful time when Jesus was born. It was a time of a lot of insecurity by the king, and he is like, there is this promise and there is this prophetic word that's spoken because Jesus, the king of the Jews, is being born, and now the actual physical at that moment king of the Jews sees this and is like, hey, I want to kill him. And it's interesting because right off the bat, out here in the suburbs of, of uh, Jerusalem, out here in Bethlehem, we see that when a promise is spoken and when a promise is given, it doesn't just happen. The enemy actually has opposition to what God wants to do because it was already prophesied what Jesus was going to do. It was already prophesied what the Messiah was going to do. But that doesn't mean that the enemy couldn't respond. And the enemy was attempting to kill the promise in its infancy before it had a chance to grow. And that's something that he still does today. So I just want to tell you, if God has given you a word, if God has put something in your life, it will come to pass, but you will face opposition. And that's okay, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But don't be discouraged when that happens. Don't be discouraged when you feel like God spoke something over me, and now I just feel like it's not happening, and I feel like things are coming. Yeah, it's coming against you, because the enemy doesn't want what you have to come to life. And that was the case with Jesus in, in the outskirts of Jerusalem, out there in the burbs. So right off the bat, God reveals his glory through Jesus Christ in his birth. And I'm glad he did. Moving on to his first miracle. So the next section of text that we read was talking about Jesus' first miracle that he ever performed. He, he was in Cana of Galilee, which is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So we were in the south. Now we're 60 miles north uh, of Jerusalem. And the story goes that Jesus is there. He has already picked out some of his disciples. They're hanging out with him. He's at this wedding. And apparently it's a big deal back then to not run out of wine while you're at the wedding. And that happens. Aw, snap, right? Like we're here and we're out of wine. And it, to me, it seems relatively insignificant. Not going to lie to you. I've made a lot of runs to Price Chopper for being short on soda it's just, it wasn't a huge deal to me just seeing it. But in this setting, to the people that were around Jesus, this was a huge deal. Like, this was a really big deal. And so Jesus says, bring me some pots, fill them up with water. They bring the pots, they fill them up with water. He turns it into wine, and not only does he turn it into wine, he turns it into better wine, which, of course he does, than the wine that was out at first, right? And so we see this story, and this is his first miracle, right? His first miracle was... To somebody who doesn't know the culture very well, seemingly insignificant to me, right? Probably not to you guys. Maybe you guys have hosted big parties and ran out of stuff. But he, in this setting, it was important, the point of all this. It was important to the person who was actually at the wedding, who was hosting it, that they didn't look bad. And so the first time Jesus does a miracle, he does something that's of significance to a small group of people because he cares about them, and he cares about the situation that they're in. And right off the bat, whether he's being born in a small city or whether he's performing his very first miracle and showing his glory, he's showing us 
that, listen, I don't care what your situation is. I don't care how small you might perceive it. I don't care how small somebody next to you might perceive it. If it matters to you, it matters to him. And he's willing to go manifest his glory and to show himself in a setting that's important to you and to me so that he can be glorified. It's an awesome thing. It tells us about the character of Jesus right off the bat that, hey, I'm not just here to do great things. I'm also here to do little things. I'm also here to help you in your day-to-day life. And if you're here today, that's the kind of God that we serve. I mean, he's not just here for salvation at the end, which he is, but he's here. He wants you to live an overcoming life today. And he cares about your situation, your financial situation, your, your family situation. And he's here. And if we pray and if we, we invite him in, he will do miracles just like this in our life every day. And I'm so thankful for that. And he reveals that in the Burbs, 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And then our last section of verses tells about Jesus' final miracle outside of Jerusalem. And it tells us that he goes to Bethany, which I think, isn't there a Bethany, Missouri? It's like around here, right? Cool. I, yeah, I was, I was writing that down. I think there is a Bethany, Missouri. Anyways, our last section, the Bible tells us that Jesus goes to Bethany, and Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. So we're getting, it's like, it's like right over there. Like we're getting really close. If this was Jerusalem, it's like new price chopper over there or whatever. It's really close. And so he's still in the suburbs. The city's got its own name, but he's getting really close. And here he encounters a dead Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And, you know, we read all those passages, and we see that Jesus goes in to this city, and Mary and Martha, meet, they, they, they already had a relationship. They meet Jesus. They give him the classic line, if you had been here, right, my brother would not have died. Um, Jesus then gives us the longest verse, or the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. We don't know exactly why Jesus weeps. It could be because... He's sad that Lazarus is dead. I don't think so. It could also be because he's there to perform a miracle, and the people he's there to perform a miracle for are doubting him already. Like, they've already written it off. Lazarus is dead. Clearly, you weren't here, and now we all have to go forward. Jesus weeps, but then he does this awesome miracle, and he, he commands Lazarus to come forth. Lazarus walks out of the grave, and he's alive, which is an amazing trick. It's an amazing thing. He raises the dead, we know the story, and it's awesome. But that, the significance of what Jesus was there to do was lost on the people around him. Because he was there to raise Lazarus up from the dead, but he was also there to demonstrate something. He was there to demonstrate that power of life and death resided with him. And this is clearly something that the disciples miss later on down the road. But that's what he was there to demonstrate. And he, he fulfills this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 through 41, And the Bible says that this is God speaking. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I say, I live forever. Today, I just want to tell you, it doesn't matter what situation you're in. I don't care what the enemy has told you. I don't care what your health situation is, what your financial situation is what your spiritual situation is, what your financial situation is, what your vehicle situation is, whatever other situation that is not coming to my head right now. I don't care what it is. It is subject to this law. If Jesus says it's going to live, it's going to live. And that's something that I think that we can hold on to today. 
So these three events that happened outside, I keep emphasizing, you guys picked up on that. We're outside the city of Jerusalem. We're in the burbs. Demonstrate that wherever Jesus is, the prophetic birth of a ministry can happen. Belief and empowerment of men and women can happen. And new life where only death existed will happen. That's just what's going to happen when Jesus is there. So why did Jesus minister everywhere but Jerusalem? The suburbs were used to develop the disciples and to establish this continuing truth about the ministry of Jesus. It's not the religious elite that he is here to reach, but it's for those who are seeking for him. See, in Jerusalem, it was filled with people who were qualified and trained. They had cool robes. I mean, that's what, awesome robes, man, long. They went down to the floor. They had the favor of all the people, all the leaders. Uh, Jerusalem was the fast track to fame and recognition, and Jerusalem had the prophetic destiny that the Messiah was going to come there. However, John chapter 7 tells us that when people tried to force Jesus to go into Jerusalem to demonstrate his power, he just was not interested. So look at these verses, John chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, which is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judea. That thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Go to Jerusalem. Let everybody see the works that you're doing. For there's no man that doeth anything in secret that he himself seeketh to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. This sounds like an antagonist right here. Like, if you're doing all this stuff out here in the burbs, great. But why don't you go into the city and show yourself to the world? That's what this person is saying. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up into this feast. I go not yet up into this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. See, the, there was an appointed time for Jesus to go into the city. There really was. We know the story. There was always a time that Jesus was going to go into the city. But in the suburbs, out in the burbs, Jesus was doing something that was very special and it was very important to the future of the gospel. He was developing disciples. He was, he was healing believers. He was allowing the religious world to see that, hey, your city it, it, I'm not contingent on anything that you have to say or any of your timelines. I'm God, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that's basically what Jesus was doing. And he's developing these disciples, and they're believing, and they're growing. And then when the timing was right, and when Jesus felt like the timing was right, he was going to enter into the city. And Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 52 tells us that that time did indeed come. So all of this stuff is happening in the suburbs. Jesus is telling, people are trying to get Jesus into the city. He's telling them, no, not right now. It's not time. But Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and 52 tells us, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before him. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. See, there was always a plan for God to enter and to take all of the things that he had been developing in the burbs and to bring it into the city. There was always a plan for that. All the miracles, all of the teaching, all of the followers, all of the disciples, all of the stuff that Jesus spent years developing in the suburbs at some point was going to enter the city. And the Bible tells us that he did 
enter into the city and absolute chaos ensued. It went exactly like you would think. Um, we have people putting palm branches down. Jesus' followers are swarming him. Uh, the Jewish leaders are screaming to crucify him. The Romans are like, hey, let's not be loud and crazy. And all of this is converging on the city at the exact same time. And worlds collided. But because it was Jesus' perfect time, everything that he had wanted to establish in the suburbs came into the city. And then the real craziness actually started to happen. So in Jerusalem, Jesus would go into the city. And within days, he would die on a cross. He would be arrested He would have a very poorly ran trial, and they would crucify him on a cross and seemingly put an end to this ministry that had been happening all throughout the burbs. But in reality, when Jesus died on a cross, what nobody knew was that he was bringing forgiveness of sins to everybody around him as a spotless lamb. And so what looked like chaos when he entered the city was actually the greatest victory that any of us have ever been a part of. Because when he died as a sinless lamb, he made it so that every sin that had ever been committed or any sin that ever would be committed, the Bible says he died one time for all men. So that if you're sitting here today and you're like, yeah, I sinned today, this morning, like at 1.30, doesn't matter. That sin is subject to God. And if he says, hey, you are forgiven, then guess what? That sin is completely forgiven. And so what looked like death, what looked like failure, was actually a great victory once it got into the city. But that wasn't all Jesus went into the city to do. He didn't just go in there to die. He also went in there to raise from the dead. And the disciples who were watching him raise Lazarus from the dead and who were amazed, you guys know, like, when you read the Bible, Jesus dies on the cross, the disciples fall apart, man. They did not handle it well at all. They were just, they weren't it. They weren't, they weren't calm, cool, and collected at all. They're dispersed. They missed the fact that, hey, this man just rose Lazarus from the dead, but that was probably just like a one-time trick. Like, he probably didn't have that in him. They missed that he had the ability himself to raise from the dead three days later, but he did. And Jesus rose from the dead, and not only did he just rise from the dead, like, with one witness looking, like, was that, did Jesus just raise from the dead and go straight to heaven? No, the Bible says he was seen of them for 40 days. Look at your neighbor, say 40. 40, that's a long time. That's like, I don't know, is that May? Sometime in June, maybe? That was like a long time ago, like in the past. He was seen of them 40 days. And he did that for this one purpose. He did that so that we can all be like, there is hope beyond this life. Because not only does he raise from that, he, he's seen of them 40 days, and he is testifying to those people that, you know what? There is a life beyond this life. There is a life beyond this grave. There is hope beyond this grave. And guess what? He's the person who gives you access to it. So not only can you have forgiveness in this life, Jesus can, who raised from the dead, the Bible says we are buried with him by baptism into repentance, that like as he rose up from the dead, we also can raise up whenever that time comes. So if you're here and you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, hey, this is a good day. You can be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you can have that same resurrection power that Jesus demonstrated in your life before you leave. But Jesus didn't just come to die. He didn't just come to raise back up in the city. He also gave the disciples the gospel. And he gave the disciples the gospel, and he passed on what he was teaching to them. And the Bible tells us that the disciples, they went in there as followers of Jesus, but they left as apostles, and they left as soul winners, and they left as preachers of the gospel. And the Bible tells us that in the city, 
the Holy Ghost was poured out for the very first time in an upper room in Jerusalem, in that city. The gift of the Holy Ghost was poured out. They spoke with other tongues. And the same day, guys, the same day that the Holy Ghost is poured out, hundreds of people are saved and are joined to the church. Talk about revival. When Jesus decides to enter into a city, he can do some pretty awesome things. And, and I'm so thankful that he did that. Peter would preach Acts 2.38 in the city. And all of the stuff that happened in the suburbs, by the time it hit the city, absolutely exploded. And the gospel that we have today, right now, comes from that event of everything in the burbs, moving to the city, and then it going out. And it's been preached to every generation, every nation, every tongue. And I'm so thankful for that today. Amen? But I think it's interesting because, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Today, we are sitting out here in the burbs ourselves. We're in the burbs. Liberty, Missouri is an awesome city. It's a city of 30,000 people. Um, it's very clean. It's very safe. It's getting kind of busy. There's a lot of banks. There's another bank. There's another bank going in by the car wash. We have more banks on 152 and 291 than the rest of the world. We lead the league in banks. <laughs> Which is probably, people have a lot of money. They got to store it in the banks. So that's a good sign. Liberty is an amazing place. It's easy to navigate for the most part. It's not easy to get places sometimes, but it's easy to navigate. And it's a really cool place. It's a great suburban city. What it is not is the monstrosity to the south of us here. Uh, <laughs> we are 18 miles from the dead center of Kansas City. And Kansas City is an awesome place. It's also kind of a scary place. It's also a place that never has road construction that's finished. Um, and uh, it, it's awesome. I like it. But it is not so much as safe as Liberty. Um, it's not as easy to navigate. It does have its fair share of banks. They seem less concentrated. Um, but the Kansas City metro has a population of 2.5 million people. 2.5 million, that's a lot of people. And they're all on the road at the same time, five o'clock. <laughs> oh, 2.5, do you have that, do you have that video? Can you show that? I, had, I thought it would be fun. This is a very fast moving video. I was in the area the other day and I duct taped my cell phone, this is my truck. <laughs> I duct taped my cell phone to the windshield and this is my drive to work. It takes about 40, 40 minutes, but it takes us 27 seconds because of time lapse. <laughs> And as, as I drive to work, I've been doing this drive for a minute now, like nine years. And uh, we, we looped, same drive, so that's good. We'll keep it going. Um, as, we, as I make this drive, I'm like overwhelmed sometimes at the sheer number of people in this city. Like the amount of houses you drive past when you're on 35 and you just go through suburb after suburb after suburb. And then you hit the Bond Bridge. And then you see like they're building a soccer stadium. You guys know where that soccer stadium is over there? That soccer stadium is going to be awesome. We're going to have a youth service in there one day. I can feel it, man. We're going to do that. It's going to be awesome. It's right on the river. It's terrific. But a few years ago, God really started to shake things up for us here at Refuge Church. If you haven't been around, I'll catch you up really quick. We were out here in the burbs doing our thing, having church. God was doing great things. He still is. Um, but everything seemed normal and safe. I mean, you could get out of service at 11.30. You could be at Jose Peppers by 12. Everything was going just the way that you would want it to go. 
And then things started getting kind of, <laughs> things got kind of weird. Uh, just seemingly out of nowhere, these pie meetings started happening. And uh, after that, the pandemic hit, which was a great time for everybody involved in that. Campaign pledges started. Parking became an issue. Might not be an issue today, but stick around when school starts, it's an issue. Um, children and youth space is an issue. Like, there's just this loud roar that comes from the drum cage every once in a while. Um, we traded our building for land. If you're here and you're a guest, yeah, this ain't our place anymore. We're just borrowing it. Uh, we were supposed to be building right over here in the new land. It's supposed to be done this year, I think. I think we're supposed to be wrapping it up. Then another fun thing happened. Building costs, like, tripled. So we put a hold on the build. Uh, we toured other buildings to no current avail. And then, like a stream of prophetic voices came in and started preaching in this pulpit that God was going to use refuge to reach a wide range of people, wider than ever before. And we were like, yeah, we believe it. Let's go. One even said that Refuge Church does not belong to a single city, but actually belongs to an entire region, which is crazy because we're in a city. But I just have a, this strong premonition that God is using this church to reach more than just the 30,000 people in Liberty. He has eyes for 2.5 million people in this metro. And I'm so thankful to be a part of it. So quick disclaimer, I have no idea where our next church is going to be and I got no insider info. Also, so confident there is no insider info. We're waiting for God to do something. And uh, when he does, I'm running. I'm so ready. But uh, I don't know what that is. Um, but this isn't about where the church location is. This is about the mindset that God has called us as a church to step into. He's called us to say, hey, look, I love what we were doing together in the burbs. But, hey, I want us to step together from a suburban mindset into a metropolitan mindset. I want us to go from 100 people in a service to 1,000 people in a service to 10,000 people in the city that are reaching. And I believe he's calling us to do that. It's as if he's saying that the time is here, the time is now for me to take what I've been doing in the suburbs and move it into the city. And just like Luke told us in chapter 9 that he had his eyes turned to Jerusalem, I have no doubt that God has turned his eyes to Kansas City and Liberty being part of that, part of that metro. And he wants to pour his spirit out in this area like he never has before. So I believe Jesus could have performed the work he did in Jerusalem at any time during his ministry. He could have. Could have probably done it at 17. Just like, let's go. Going to die on a cross. Going to save the world. Um, but he waited. And his timing is perfect. And sometimes I think we get... Well, you know, we'll, we'll say it just like as a cliche, you know, God, your timing, not mine. And that is a good thing to say. But I, I believe that sometimes God's, God's timing is us being prepared for what he wants to do. I think sometimes we can slow down or speed up God's timing based on our preparation and our willingness to do what he's asking us to do. And I believe that he's ready to pour out revival on this metro, but I do believe that he's waiting on us as a church, as a congregation, to do the things that he has called us to do. He needs us to develop that new ministry, whatever that is. I know that's general, but if you've got a ministry in your heart that God's put there, he needs you to develop that ministry. There's 100 of us in here, maybe 120 because counting is hard, but there's not a ton of us in here. And there's 2.5 million out there. There's a lot of work that we can do. 
He needs us to, to develop that nursing home ministry, that outreach opportunity, that Bible study, that prayer group. He needs us. I believe he's waiting on us because the prophetic word has already been spoken. His eyes have already turned, but now he's wondering, will you go with us? Will you be part of what I'm going to do in the city? See, it's already prophetically spoken. He's already going to do it. It's just a question of are we going to be part of it or is he going to have to find somebody else? And I know there's other churches in the area. We love them. We support them. But I believe with my whole heart that he's calling Refuge Church first, and he's calling us. And he didn't ask my opinion. But if I could tell him my opinion, I think he made a great choice because I think you guys are amazing. And if we were just like, hey, spiritual picking teams right now. Chad, you're a captain. And there was 10 other captains up here with me. And all the people were available. I'd pick you guys. And I'd have like some of you that I knew might get picked by other teams hide under the bench so they didn't see you until it was my turn. Because I have no doubt that God has brought you to this church for this time. And I'm so glad that we're doing this together. And I know that I know that you might be like, yeah, that's great. He's probably talking to the youth group kind of talking to you guys, but no, I'm not actually just talking to the youth group. I'm talking to all you guys, because ministry doesn't just start at 17 if you're in the right spot at the right time. It happens when you decide at 57 or at 41 or at 89 that everything that you've experienced in life, you're going to give to God and allow him to use it. And how, that could be 13, but that could also be 52 or 1. And when you decide to say, you know what, God, I'm going to give you my life and all of, its, all of its mess, he is going to take that and he is going to use that in a way that you never even imagined possible because that's who he is. The transition from what's safe and easy to the extreme of reaching people you don't know is not easy at all. And Peter is a great example of somebody who struggled with the transition from suburb ministry to city ministry. Look at these verses. I'm actually closing pretty quick, so... Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 74. The ministry that's happened in the suburbs has moved into the city. Jesus' prophetic plan is put into place. He has been arrested. He is about to go before Pilate. And the disciples, like I mentioned, they did not handle it as well as they should have. And we find Peter. Peter, who was bold in the suburbs, now he's in the city with people he doesn't recognize. He goes in there with Jesus and... I'm just going to read to you what happens. So now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came unto him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little while later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them. For your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. See, in the burbs, Peter was confident. He was comfortable, so he was confident. That's, the, that's what you got to know. He was comfortable first, because when you're ministering in Galilee, he was from Galilee. He, he knew the area. He knew the Sea of Galilee. He knew all the fishermen. He was comfortable. It was easy for him. He was confident. He was like, Jesus, bid me to come out of the boat. I'm going to walk on the water with you. He was great, man. Peter was an all-star in the suburbs. But when things got spiritually tight in the city, 
And when Jesus went to do what he ultimately had planned to do, we see that Peter, not only did he like just kind of shy away, he openly denies Jesus three separate times. One time he even swears and curses at the person talking to him, which tells us that the old lifestyle that he thought he had kind of gotten away from was really just hanging out right there all along. Because as soon as things got tough, he just went right back to his old lifestyle. And it's kind of tough because it's not an easy transition when God takes a group of people from one area that's comfortable into another area that's not. And he knows that. But it is a challenge, and it's not for everybody. There was a lot of people who followed Jesus who, when he got into the city, they were nowhere to be seen. But Peter's story doesn't end with his failure, which is awesome. Thank God for that, because I've done some pretty stupid things myself. Jesus is, we see that Jesus dies on the cross. He, he, he raises back up so that time has passed. Peter makes this mistake. He fails and time has passed before he gets to interact with Jesus. And we see Jesus is coming to Peter and he's, he's comforting him. And he's saying like, hey, Peter, I understand that you made that mistake. And he asks him, do you love me? Right? And you, you guys are, some of you are familiar with this verse. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, I do. And Jesus doesn't say, awesome, we're all good. Uh, try not to panic next time things get hard, right? It's not, what, it's not what Jesus tells him. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, hey, even first off, even in failure, you still have purpose. But here is your purpose. If you love me, feed my sheep. Jesus tells Peter that three times. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter's like, you know, I love you. You know, he's like, okay. It took a minute for it to kind of sink in. Jesus is saying to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, preach to people who aren't like you. That's who Jesus' sheep were. If you love me, then you have to love them. Peter, if you love me, reach this city. Not just the burbs where it's comfortable, but reach this city. Peter, if you love me, get outside of your comfort zone and your insecurity and do the ministry I've called you to do. Peter, if you love me, then feed my sheep. And today I believe that there are people in this room who love Jesus. I know you do. You guys are my favorite. You guys would be my team if I could pick a team. But I do think there might be some of us who are hanging around outside the light, outside the pressure, outside the sacrifice, outside of the time and the devotion, maybe outside of our calling that God has for us. We're coming to church. We're doing our best. Life's hard, man. It is. It is hard, by the way. I know that. But if we love him, are we feeding his sheep? Or are we just telling him, you know I love you. Can we just call it good? And I feel like he's looking at us and he's saying like, hey, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, take this thing outside of our comfort zone. Take this thing outside of what's easy. Take this thing outside of, you know, the, the one or two ministries maybe that you do. And what are you going to do to feed my sheep? If you love me, then feed my sheep. And maybe it's because last time we tried something for the kingdom, we failed. Because it's hard, man. It's hard doing kingdom work. It's not a lot of validation. You're not 100% sure if people actually care sometimes. I know, it's tough. Everybody in here has done something in ministry. You're like, yeah, that was a disaster and I'll never do that again. But youth conventions every year and we got to go back. So that's what we do. <laughs> But maybe last time you did something in ministry, it didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. And you're like, hey, I'm going to go to church, but those church people are weird. And I'm not going to get involved in ministry with them. 
Or maybe it's because you're fearful and you're insecure and you're like, hey, these people have it all together, but I don't. If they knew what I did, if they knew my past, if they knew my, like nobody's gonna listen to my testimony, look at me. Maybe it's an insecurity thing issue. But I feel like God is calling Refuge Church and I know that he's calling us deeper and it's been spoken over this pulpit. But I think he's also calling some of us to action that maybe haven't done anything in a while, to be honest with you. Because a youth group, a senior pastor and maybe like 10 fired up people, that's not going to reach this city. It's just not going to work. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take me. It's going to take you. It's going to take them. It's going to take people who aren't even here yet. It's going to take all of us. And I feel like God is calling us today. And he's saying, hey, if you love me, you're the first choice, man. If you love me, feed my sheep. So as we stand, I want to I want to end by... Uh, giving you a full disclaimer that I'm sharing a story that Brother Mark Morgan shared, so it's not mine. But I thought you needed to hear it, so. And he says that any time in the Bible that there's reference to the throne of God, and we all want access to the throne of God, because what happens at the throne of God is whatever God says happens. That's where the creative voice comes from. That's where anointing comes from. That's where power comes from. If God speaks something from his throne, it will happen. So we want access to the throne of God. We do. That should be our goal when we're praying, when we're, whatever we're doing, it should be to get access to the throne of God. But anytime you see the throne of God in the Bible, not far away, in very close proximity, there is an altar. An altar is always close to the throne of God. And you know, the altar in the Bible is not just a place of prayer. Like God, you know, help me as I go about my day, right? It's not just a place of prayer. In the Bible, the altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place of death. It is. And we have to come to an altar and we have to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed. Because see, Jesus, again, in the burbs, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane on a hill, right outside the city of Jerusalem, he prayed and he said, God, if it's possible, I want you to do everything that you said you were going to do, but maybe this cup could pass from me. Jesus himself said it, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he said, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God's gonna reach this city and you are gonna be part of it if you wanna be, because you're, I probably, I'm speaking for him out of turn, but you're his favorite, you're my favorite. He wants to use you to reach this city, but we have got to be able to come to an altar and we have got to be able to kneel down and say, you know what, God, I'm gonna put aside my will I'm gonna put aside what I think ministry should look like. I'm gonna put aside my ideals. I'm gonna put aside what I've told you I'm called to do. And I'm gonna to listen to what you're asking me to do. Because if you'll come to an altar and if you'll put aside your flesh and your will and your plan, then we can hear from the throne and then he can speak through us and he can accomplish the thing that he has set out to accomplish. And I have. I joke around a lot, but I have no doubt that today God has a very specific plan. And if you will come to this altar and you will give him your heart, and if you will put aside your will and your plan for your future, he will bring some callings out of some people that maybe have been lying dormant for years. There are some prophetic promises that are sitting not just in these first two rows that he wants to bring back to life. And they were put there for a time such as this because there is a city that needs you and needs your calling and needs your anointing and needs your will to go to him so that we can reach them. 
So if you can, for a few minutes, if you'll find a place to pray, I believe God is gonna meet us here tonight.